Hello to my freedom-loving friends. You are listening to the Free Mitten News, brought to you by the Libertarian Party of Michigan. I am your host, the Communications Director for the Libertarian Party of Michigan, Connor Nepomucino. My mission here is to bring you the Libertarian perspective on the current events in Michigan and the United States. This week we'll be covering the rising inflation and its effects on your Thanksgiving dinner, as well as some foreign policy news from Europe and NATO, as well as the fight for school choice in the State House and Governor Whitmer's illegal campaign fundraising. Let's get down to business. We start today with some pressing international news, as heightened tensions threaten to embroil Americans in yet more conflict around the globe, and this time with a pair of nuclear-armed powers. First, in southern Europe, a constitutional crisis prompted by Bosnian Serb leader Milorad Dodik threatens the fragile peace that brought an end to the ethnically driven civil war in 1995. The end of the peace, which was brokered by the United States in Dayton, Ohio, and enforced by European peacekeeping missions, threatens the reemergence of conflict between the Serbs and their Croat and Bosniak neighbors. In the final stages of their NATO membership application, the Biden administration has expressed its consternation with these developments which reports attribute to encouragement by Moscow, which just last week effectively blocked a continuing UN Security Council resolution aimed at maintaining stability in the country, one of Europe's poorest. At the same time, to the north, Poland faces an unwanted stream of African and Middle Eastern refugees it claims neighboring Belarus conveyed to its border, again with Russia's encouragement, in retaliation for sanctions levied against it by the Polish government. Groups of unidentified gunmen have been reported in the area, and Warsaw claims Minsk is conducting a hybrid attack on it. This situation is all the more worrisome because Poland is already a NATO member, and under Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, all member states are obligated to treat any attack on one as an attack on all. This, of course, includes the United States. As of yet, Warsaw has not called for any outside assistance in handling the migrant inflow. Meanwhile, as happened this past April, satellite reports indicate Russia has begun amassing troops along this eastern border with Ukraine, where the civil war between the central government in Kiev and Russian separatists to the east continues. These situations have both prompted critical responses from the Biden administration as well, which continues to express support for Ukraine's NATO aspirations despite Moscow's stated position to the contrary. Lastly, but no less seriously, is the situation surrounding Taiwan where the Biden administration has effectively thrown out the four-decade-old policy of strategic ambiguity. Under the policy, the U.S. made no commitment either to defend or not defend Taiwan from potential invasion from mainland China. The small island, whose claims of independence are not recognized by the United Nations or United States, is recognized as part of China. For its part, Beijing has been unswerving in its insistence on the island's return and has not ruled out the use of force to achieve that end. While libertarians hold the natural right to self-determination sacred, this does not extend to supporting the liberal internationalist foreign policy that motivated U.S. actions around the globe following the Second World War. Non-intervention in the internal affairs of other countries, as well as in the conflicts between countries, are pillars of libertarian foreign policy thinking. In the case of Taiwan, what the Biden administration proposes is nothing less than armed intervention in a 70-year-long Chinese civil war. The Biden administration is way out of line with its policy shift, and its wider actions are equally provocative. 
Apart from forming a new Indo-Pacific Defense Alliance with the United Kingdom and Australia, and agreeing to arm the Australians with nuclear submarines, it approved additional advanced weapons sales to Taiwan, and has admitted to secretly inserting U.S. troops into Taiwan this past year, a report leaked by the Wall Street Journal last month. The case of Taiwan illustrates urgently the need for Congress to take back from the President the extensive prerogatives in the foreign policy domain that had gradually accredited to the office during the Cold War and War on Terrors. In cases of Southern and Eastern Europe, in his farewell address to Congress, George Washington cautioned against entangling European alliances. NATO was created to combat the Soviet Union and should have been dissolved following the conclusion of the Cold War and emergence of a unified Europe. Instead, it was expanded right up to Russia's doorsteps, against its repeatedly stated wishes, to the point that Moscow felt the need to start pushing back, thus restarting the security competition of the Cold War in Europe. The libertarian position is simple. No foreign military entanglements. Natural equilibria will obtain in each region of the globe in accordance with the local power dynamics of that region. The deployment of anything else commits the U.S. to perpetual intervention to keep things to its liking, requiring, among other things, the risking of countless American lives at a cost of almost a trillion tax dollars a year in military and related spending over conflicts that are none of our business in places one look at a map can tell you aren't really core to U.S. security interests. Speaking of taxes... The so-called hidden tax of inflation continues to rise. The increase in consumer price levels to its highest rate in 30 years has people doubting the administration and Federal Reserve's continued insistence that the surge is temporary. This, according to the University of Michigan's Consumer Confidence Survey, which recently reported measuring its lowest levels of consumer confidence since the immediate years following the global financial crisis of 2008. High prices for gas and food, as well as shortages of durable consumer goods, have taken its toll on President Biden's already declining popularity. In fact, despite passage last week of Biden's much-touted Build Back Better plan, the president's approval rating continues to decline, registering almost a 1% drop in the week since its passage. At the same time, unexpected Democratic losses in last week's elections in Virginia and New Jersey are being attributed to Biden's lackluster showing thus far into his first term, with most independent analysts predicting that Democrats will likely lose both the House and Senate in next year's 2022 midterm elections. During the 2020 campaign season, there were essentially two Joe Bidens, one who campaigned for the Democratic nomination and one who campaigned for president. The first tried to keep pace with his more popular progressive rivals within the Democratic Party. The second presented himself as a unifying centrist. We got the former. Big spending on new social programs and attempts at combating climate change vaccine mandates, new taxes, continued deficits, with both branches of government under their control, President Biden and his progressive Democratic colleagues have been free to run amok, and their falling numbers in surveys and at the polls reflects this reality. Faced with likely Republican control of Congress in the final two years of his administration, Joe Biden will be prevented from acting completely as he has something libertarians everywhere can be thankful for.
the rampant inflation is going to be hitting closer to home this year. The New York Times recently published an article by Kim Severson on the wallop that your wallet is going to take for this year's holiday celebrations on account of the rampant inflation, labor shortages, and supply chain issues plaguing the country right now. Per the article, Matthew McClure paid 20% more this month than he did last year for the 25 pasture-raised turkeys he plans to roast at The Hive, the Bentonville, Arkansas restaurant where he is the executive chef. And Norman Brown, director of sweet potato sales for Wada Farms in Raleigh, North Carolina, is paying truckers nearly twice as much as usual to haul the crop to other parts of the country. Nearly every component of the traditional American Thanksgiving dinner from the disposable aluminum turkey roasting pan to the coffee and pie will cost more this year, according to agricultural economists, farmers, and grocery executives. Major food companies like Nestle and Procter & Gamble have already warned consumers to brace for more price increases. In September, the consumer price index for food was up 4.6% from a year ago. Prices for meat, poultry, fish, and eggs soared 10.5%. End quote. It seems that the inflation, promised by Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell to be transitory in June, is anything but. But as we go into another consumer-driven holiday season, the truth is that the trillions of dollars printed last year don't just disappear and that knock-on effects can only be vanished as effectively as throwing dirt under a rug. Of remarkable note is this talking point, quote, Canned cranberry sauce will cost more because domestic steel plants have yet to catch up after pandemic shutdowns, and China is limiting steel production to reduce carbon emissions. As a result, steel prices have remained more than 200% higher than they were before the pandemic, end quote. Thanks, Greta. You are doing a fantastic job. Now, libertarians have been saying this for years that if green energy initiatives are not being implemented organically, being driven by market demand, and without consideration for the unseen consequences to the market cycle, then shortages will be commonplace and prices will rise accordingly, exacerbating the ongoing supply chain crisis in the short term and permanently assaulting the working class's wallets on the long term. But oh no, it's only a high-class problem according to the clueless, politically connected class. Another point made in the article, quote, even the basic materials, like wooden pallets and cardboard containers, that farmers need to get their crops from the field to distributors are either hard to find or much more expensive, end quote. Let's take a second to point out that President Biden has taken no steps to roll back the trade war implemented by President Trump and has, in fact, expanded restrictions on lumber imports from Canada, resulting in climbing prices, not only in construction or directly on farmers trying to get goods to market, but on every good being transported on pallets, or just about everything. For some news hitting close to home, we get to have a look at Governor Whitmer's campaign fundraising. In July, she reported having a record war chest, surpassing previous fundraising benchmarks for her gubernatorial candidate in Michigan in an off-election year, raising $8.5 million between January and July. In the months since, 
her push has continued at that record pace. Obviously, being the Democratic National Committee Vice Chair and a darling of the Democratic Party, being hailed as a hero for her authoritarian COVID response and getting the national spotlight for the Democrat response to Trump's 2020 State of the Union address has given her access to a huge nationwide fundraising base. Democratic leadership also clearly shows her favor, as they likely view Michigan as a key battleground state going into the 2022 midterms. However, since July 20th, the Whitmer campaign has received $550,000 more over the limits, adding to the $3.4 million she took over the limits earlier in the year. In Michigan, donors are restricted to a $6,800 limit for a statewide candidate. I'd like to note that several publications are listing a $7,150 limit, which they point out most contributors limit themselves to, but the Secretary of State lists $6,800 on their website. The Whitmer campaign is citing a 1980s era decision by the Secretary of State that a candidate facing an active recall campaign can receive limitless fundraising because petitioners are not limited in their fundraising likewise. The issue is that the Secretary of State has commented, after being prompted by journalists, that even though many petitions have been filed to recall the governor in the last two years, None have submitted signatures within the deadlines, nor are any currently collecting signatures to do so. The Secretary of State has made no announcement or comment on charging the Whitmer campaign. Clearly, this fundraising is being conducted illegally. However, here is the ace up the sleeve for them. If the Secretary of State does, rightfully, rule this fundraising illegal, then the Whitmer campaign must either return the illegally raised funds or reallocate those funds to other political or campaign committees. This effectively makes the Whitmer campaign the center of a web of fundraising for the Democratic Party of Michigan, allowing her to collect funds she can't use for her own campaign, but can distribute at will. This allows her to bypass the controls of her own state party fundraising apparatus, which allows her to solidify her influence in the Democratic Party even further. It's actually very clever and demonstrative of the tenacity to which these political elites will claw for power and influence. Next, after waiting for several months, it was confirmed that Sandra Jacobs of Saline, Michigan, died because of an injection of Johnson & Johnson's COVID vaccine. On September 20th, Michigan medicine pathologist Dr. Michael Kaplan completed the autopsy report. Dr. Kaplan confirmed that Jacobs succumbed to a rare but nevertheless documented complication associated with the viral vector vaccine, cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, a condition characterized by a blood clot in the venous sinuses, part of the brain's blood drainage system. The injection caused Jacobs to have a hemorrhagic stroke caused by brain bleeding and brain swelling. The death certificate lists the cause as complications as cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, prompted by a recent administration of a COVID-19 vaccine as the contributing condition. Kaplan deemed the manner of death a natural one, despite acknowledging the underlying therapeutic complication, since this is a known vaccine side effect. Despite the direct involvement Dr. Kaplan has been discouraged from speaking about the death by Dr. Alicia Wilson, 
Washtenaw County's chief medical examiner. In a public statement, Dr. Wilson confirmed that neither Kaplan nor the health department will be commenting or investigating further. In conjunction with the Washtenaw County Health Department, we have decided not to have Dr. Kaplan or the medical examiner's office provide further comment on the case. Manufacturer Johnson & Johnson has also declined to address the case or their role in Jacob's death. Jacob's death occurred just 13 days after, after she received the single shot at a CVS pharmacy on April 8th. This is also five days before federal health agencies temporarily paused the vaccine administration while they examined unusual blood clotting disorders linked to the Johnson & Johnson injection. Jacobs is just one of a growing number of Johnson & Johnson injection recipients who have died from some form of thrombosis, usually linked to low platelet counts in the victim's blood. The death of Sandra Jacobs is a tragedy and was an unavoidable one. If demands for rigorous testing had been met before release and the J&J &J in injection had been pulled when issues of clotting were first detected, Jacobs and numerous others would be alive now. The rarity of the side effect is not an excuse to push forward with the drug unaltered and certainly not to ignore a potentially dangerous side effect even though this has been the case with all COVID injections since the inception of their use. Rarity, or perceived rarity, of harmful effect does not justify the continued use of force and threat of impoverishment on those who wish to avoid potentially fatal injury due to poor medical product. If nothing else, it calls for deeper review of such products as well as an individual's right to decline such drugs based on their own health concerns without incurring economic penalty from the state or their employers. The refusal of Dr. Wilson, both as physician and as the chief medical examiner for Washtenaw County, should give every member of the public pause. It is clear that many medical experts are willing to suppress information, if only by omission, in order to sidestep uncomfortable issues of harm done by such drugs and the public officials who mandate them, while erroneously identifying them as safe. If one COVID death is too many, then that should doubly apply to COVID vaccination deaths, which are avoidable simply by not utilizing them, far easier than avoiding a widespread contagion. The reality is that such deaths are deemed as acceptable losses and any manner of excuses will be made to shift focus away from the harm COVID injections may do. The motive for suppression of such information and the subsequent needless loss of life, be it because those who do so feel the absence of widespread use may lead to more infection deaths, choosing who lives and who dies in effect with vax victims being acceptable losses, or the propagation of the state-led pharmaceutical agenda is ultimately irrelevant. Both represent a demand for the potential death of innocent people and the suppression of evidence of such in order to coerce the behavior desired by the state and their cronies. Further bad news for the president and his party came as the previews of the 2022 midterms in Virginia, and New Jersey returned overwhelming victories for the Republican Party. 
of the key issues powering newcomer Glenn Youngkin's campaign, prominent among them were opposition to mask mandates in schools, as well as opposition to the teaching of critical race theory. Youngkin is not alone. This past week, Republicans in Michigan passed a piece of legislation aimed at preventing the teaching of critical race theory in Michigan schools. While libertarians oppose racism or any other discriminatory bias against a person or group on the basis of an inherent characteristic, and we are resolute advocates of free speech, libertarians also oppose public education generally. Apart from the fact that that the U.S. pays almost twice as much on a per-student basis than any other similarly advanced society, while returning middling results to say the least, evidence abounds that most students cannot recall much of the, what they learned in high school within a few years of graduation unless they majored in the subject in college. Anyone who has ever caught reruns of the once popular television show Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader won't be surprised. Further, the fact that parents, who pay the bill for their children's education via taxes, are given no control over what is taught in public schools. The libertarian perspective is simple. Private and charter schools are the rational way to build educated, free-thinking, dynamic societies, which paves the way to some bills that were introduced to the Michigan State House a couple weeks ago. A couple of bills passed in the Michigan legislature which Democrats are lambasting as school voucher programs. The bills create tax credits that allow parents to contribute to a tax-free scholarship program which can allocate up to $7,830, or 90% of what is currently being paid out for public school students. The scholarships can be used for private education and for services such as transportation, special needs classes, or extracurricular activities. This is obviously a tremendous victory for parent-student autonomy and could go a long way to improving outcomes for a huge number of Michigan students. But of course, there are several sticking points holding this bill up. The biggest is that Governor Whitmer has already vowed to veto the bills, citing that she cannot support taking away funds from General Education Fund in favor of private schools. This is a very misleading claim on its face. Students are taking their funds which was appropriated from their parents via taxation, with them. This doesn't actually affect the per-student spending the state is making right now. In fact, if you consider that the limit for the scholarship program is 90% of what the state collects and spends for public school students, even more money is available on a per-student basis in public schools. An added benefit, of course, is that it lowers the ratio of student to teachers in the public schools. That is, if enough parents flee the public school system, that is. Another major, major obstacle to the bill is a 1970 amendment to the Michigan Constitution, which explicitly prohibits public tax dollars from being used on private schools, often referred to as Blaine Amendments, in reference to a Maine legislator from the late 18th century who was a major advocate for blocking state funding for religious institutions such as churches and church-operated schools, these amendments are widely adopted throughout state constitutions. The Mackinac Center has already launched a legal challenge against the state of Michigan in an effort to get the amendment overturned. They actually stand to have a strong chance of success, as in the last few decades, 31 out of 37 states which have Blaine amendments 
have had them struck down in either district or U.S. Supreme Court challenges, often citing First Amendment issues, including last year in Montana. We wish them the best of luck. Governor Whitmer was seen celebrating, harpooning these bills with public school administrator group and teachers union leaders. Of course, they all have a shared interest in maintaining the indoctrination monopoly and have huge financial interests in keeping cash flowing into their members' pockets. These same people are responsible for the growing ineptitude of the public school system and bear culpability in making the public school experience during the pandemic so hellacious for children. This is what has caused parents to seek out alternatives to the public school system over the last year. It is why both private school and homeschooling enrollments are up. But the public education lobbyists desperately want to keep your children in their clutches. For these people, it is not about giving your children the best outcomes and setting them up for a life of freedom and success, but it is for keeping the cash flowing and setting up your children as uncritical and unwitting servants to the system that they control. Early this week, the Biden administration made a plea to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to both overturn the suspension and rule in favor of its vaccine mandate which would force injection as a condition of employment on an estimated 80 to 100 million American workers. The administration's 28-page filing argued that while the claim of authority was unprecedented, it was necessary to protect workers and was, quote, well-grounded in law, unquote, despite the fact that it represents a substantial overreach of executive authority and a stretch even for the practices of OSHA. The argument had less support in the form of legal authority and precedent than it did pleas that such suspension, quote, would likely cost dozens or even hundreds of lives per day, end quote, though no information was given as to how this was the case. The suspension of the order from the White House, whose authority under the Constitution is highly questionable, would force employees of companies with 100 or more employees to either be vaccinated or wear masks and submit to weekly testing for an indefinite period. The current deadline for full implementation is January 4th. Resistance to the federal mandates emerged almost immediately as numerous companies and 26 states filed suit. Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Montana, Nebraska, New Hampshire, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wyoming were the first to file. They were later joined by Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, Texas, and Utah, which filed in the New Orleans-based 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. While Kansas, Kentucky, Idaho, Ohio, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and West Virginia filed in the Cincinnati-based 6th Circuit, additional suits have been filed by Alabama, Florida, and Georgia. The suits filed note that the executive does not have the authority to issue such orders, nor is it the purview of OSHA to create individual medical requirements, especially those that impact the workers outside of the workplace. The suit points to previously exercised powers as limits, namely, quote, to protect workers from dangerous workplace substances like asbestos, end quote, and that OSHA has never been, quote, a public health agency with the wide-ranging authority to address communicable disease, end quote. 
The suit also noted that this new overreach was clearly a pretext for the Biden administration's continued push to force COVID injections on citizens of the United States. Given the number and importance of the plaintiffs, as well as the controversial nature of the new claim of authority on the part of the White House, the Fifth Circuit Court blocked the order, saying they have, quote, cause to believe that there are grave statutory and constitutional issues with the mandate, end quote. Despite the rulings of the Fifth and Circuit Courts, the issue is likely to go to the Supreme Court and will most likely take months of judicial review before getting settled. Neither the prolonging of the issue or movement to higher courts would bode well for the White House and its mandate as it will lead to the discrediting of their authority. This has led to the new push on the part of OSHA to goad employers into starting the process now and let the litigation play out. The legal questionality of such a directive and the repercussions remain open, as the mandate, if ruled unconstitutional, will likely see numerous lawsuits follow. First and foremost, the Biden administration's mandate and its subsequent use of OSHA as a tool for forcing citizens into unwanted medical procedures should be addressed as what it is, a naked overreach of power for the purpose of depriving citizens of their bodily autonomy. The president is not the arbiter of medical procedure for the citizens of the United States and has no right or claim to authority to force injections via coercion such as loss of employment. The current tactic employed by the White House is now functionally get the jab or go broke, and we are apt to see increasingly harsh tactics and attacks on human rights to force injections on citizens as the agenda of mass injection has consistently failed to materialize to the White House's satisfaction. That the public's confidence in such injections has rightly never been as high as they desired has made their agenda impossible to implement without engaging in some form of retribution for saying no. Given that only a little over 60% of the populace is currently considered fully vaccinated by the administration, their next logical step was a violation of rights to harm and threaten harm to citizens to coerce them into taking the COVID-19 injections. What we are seeing with employment is potentially only the beginning. Other nations have already engaged in more aggressive policies of retribution and violation against those who say no. The Australian government, which has been consistently extreme in the oppression of its citizenry, has begun to seize money and property from the uninjected on the pretext of fines for not being injected. A more horrendous catch-22 can hardly be imagined. While it is easy to rely on the hope that the courts will have the sense to block the Biden administration mandates as clear violation of executive powers under the Constitution, we must be aware of two things. Firstly, this is not the only trick that the White House is apt to pull in forcing the jab on the public. Even if this action is defeated via judicial action, the mandate enthusiasts will look for new ways to force their medical procedures on the unwilling. Secondly, the Constitution is simply a piece of paper with some guidelines written on it. It is limited in its ability to protect individual rights by those who have the power to interpret it or alter it to suit an agenda. To deal with the danger of medical mandates, individuals have to say no, even if the powers that be determine such things to be constitutionally permissible. 
Neither the state nor its legal documents grant rights. They can only protect those rights or violate them. We must always remember that our lives are political games to such people, and that the buck does not stop with their rules, but our inherent rights. It is not ultimately on the courts and the Constitution to protect you from corrupt men and women who will sell your bodies for votes and donations. It is up to you to protect your life and your liberty. Well, friends, that concludes our first Free Mitten News Bulletin. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe and share the show with your friends so that I can red pill them without mercy. With their consent, of course. This is Connor Nepomucino, signing off.